Lake Mead is shrinking. And when I say that, here's what I mean. If you go to Las Vegas, drive out to the lake, which is actually America's largest reservoir, you'll notice a strange pale stripe running along the waterline. Some people call this a bathtub ring. Over the last two decades, it has gotten so dry here that it is as if the lake has drained, leaving bleached white rocks where the waterline used to be. As the water recedes, it's uncovering things that got drowned a long time ago. Just this month, a World War II-era swamp boat emerged from the lake. And a few weeks before that, people were making more gruesome discoveries. Just a short drive from Sin City out here in the wilderness, this past Saturday, May 7th, human skeletal remains spotted at a popular recreation spot. As we discovered more and more bones, um, especially the jawbone, we realized this is definitely human. It definitely feels like some dystopian uh, fantasy novel for sure. And I think that's characteristic of where we're at. Jason Smurden is a climate scientist at Columbia University. He was one of the first people to look at what's happening at Lake Mead and all over the American Southwest and realize this isn't just any old drought. It's a mega drought. To him, the bodies being uncovered, they're just a small part of the story. So there are bodies being found as they're uncovered by the receding waters in these reservoirs. And what's particularly disconcerting about that, Mary, is the levels are getting to the point where our ability to generate hydropower from these reservoirs and our ability to withdraw water for human consumption is very much in jeopardy because the infrastructure is built to a certain level within the reservoir. And once you go below that level, the intake pipes for pumping water out for human consumption are no longer um, underneath the water level. So what are they pumping? Well, they won't be, they'll be pumping air. They're like dead fish. Actually, uh, you know, the, the real worst case scenario with Lake Mead is what we call Deadpool. That's not a Ryan Reynolds franchise exclusively. It's also the state of the reservoir when it goes below the infrastructure's ability to take water in through pumps to, for human consumption and to take water in to generate hydropower. You sound so cheerful when you talk about this. Is that like a defense mechanism? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Put me on the couch. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think, you know, as somebody working in this area, um, we perhaps get desensitized to the real on-the-ground impacts. But, you know, my take is also that for those of us working in this, this area, there's a sense of urgency and just rolling your sleeves up and getting to work to characterize the problem and thinking about how to fix it. Today on the show, inside the American mega drought, how we got here and how we're going to get out. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. Earlier this year, you and your colleagues released this study. And it showed that this kind of off-the-charts, extreme dryness over the last couple of years in the southwest of the United States, it was the worst mega drought in 1,200 years. That sounds extreme. 
Can you just explain how you figured that out? Of course. Well, the the basic observation that we use are tree rings. And so there's trees that live for hundreds of years in the Southwest, and there's tree ring records in beams that have been used to construct various uh, structures out West. And you can look at the ring width in these records. And it turns out that most of the trees in the Southwest, because it's moisture limited, when they get lots of moisture and they're happy, they put on thicker rings. Uh, when they're in drought, they put on much thinner rings. And so by piecing all of these trees together back in time, we were able to generate soil moisture estimates from these tree ring records going back to 800 CE. 800? Yeah. It, I mean, to put that in context, Charlemagne was appointed the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire uh, in 800 CE. So that's how far back in history we're talking. Over the last 12 centuries, the amount of water these trees got, it clearly waxed and waned. There have been droughts before, even mega droughts. But this time's different. Climate change has taken what might have been a dry spell and supercharged it. There's a real basic mechanism that is at play here, which is the increasing temperatures. So the increasing temperatures are what's drawing more moisture out of the soil and has really supercharged this drought and made it, by our estimate, 42% more severe in terms of the cumulative water deficit in the Southwest over the last 22 years. Though that warming is gonna continue as long as we keep dumping CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And we very much expect this mega drought to end. It could end in a couple of years, it could persist for another decade. It's, it's really unknown how long it's gonna continue into the future. But then you have this longer centennial trend that's due to the warming in the Southwest that's really characteristic of aridification. So a trend toward just a drier and drier baseline as you go out into the future. One of the things that's interesting about your research and others is the evidence that the situation in the Southwest right now is actually much worse because of the fact that the last couple hundred years have been wetter than usual and have given us a warped sense of what the climate should look like in the Southwest, just as we were ramping up population of that area. So we kind of built the Southwest on this assumption that was false, that it would have a certain amount of water. And that's kind of making everything more complicated. Can you explain that a little bit? So what's so interesting about the Southwest and the classic example is that in the early 20th century, the Southwest was in the middle of what's called a pluvial. It's like the opposite of a mega drought. It's a, a persistent period of um, increased precipitation and moisture. Sounds great. Yeah, it does. And <laughs> it happens. But one of the reasons why that early 20th century context is so important is because the Colorado River Compact was drafted in 1922. And the drafters of that compact, this involves the seven states that draw water from the Colorado River, which is so essential to the water resources in the Southwest. They drafted that compact based on an assumption that the amount of water in the river was characteristic of this pluvial period. So they based their allocations, which were absolute amounts of water, not percentage of water, but absolute amounts of water based on that pluvial period. Below the Grand Canyon, the Colorado flows into Lake Mead, over 115 miles long. The lake covers nearly 230 square miles. Lake Mead is a popular recreation area. 
And that's created a lot of problems currently because these water allocations, the Colorado River Compact will be renegotiated in 2026. And in many ways, a lot of the water challenges throughout the Colorado River Basin have been precipitated by the fact that the compact was originally drafted, assuming there was a lot more water in the Colorado River Basin than actually exists long term. You say it's going to be renegotiated soon. Are they going to try to do it better this time? Do you have confidence in that? Well, I yes, I do. I think that there's a lot of local, state, and federal planners who are taking this very seriously. There's already been the water restrictions were in place on the Colorado River for the first time last year, recognizing the um, precarious situation that we currently have. And I think that people understand in most cases that this is going to be a long-term threat for the region. You're seeing, I think, really optimistic and and, uh, beneficial planning in a lot of the municipalities. So cities like uh, San Diego, for instance, have done a great job at reducing their water consumption through a lot of measures, uh, water recycling, instituting low-flow toilets and shower heads. So you're saying some cities are doing an okay job of sort of figuring out alternative ways to deal with this drought. But it really sounds like to me that without getting vast swaths of land on the same page here, including rural areas, farmers, and the cities, it'll be hard to fix much of anything. I mean, I think that's accurate. One of the, you know, there's just competing trends out west. So the other story out for much of the um, western cities is there's some of the most rapidly increasing urban populations in the country right now. So you know, as much as San Diego has done a lot of good things to conserve and recycle water, their population is exploding. And you do wonder at what point demand exceeds supply. The story is also not uh, great in all cities. So Salt Lake City is a, a place that's been in the news of late because of what's happening to the Great Salt Lake. Can you explain just really basic, what does the Great Salt Lake look like now compared to what it looked like in, say, the 80s? So the Great Salt Lake has reduced in size by two-thirds. Two-thirds? By two-thirds. So there's vast areas of the lake bed that are exposed and just look like salt flats, like you might imagine in other locations uh, from car commercials or otherwise. So this is a really scary unfolding story and really, I think, encapsulates all of these different incentives. Salt Lake City is another urban area that's growing very rapidly. They have Um, It's some of the cheapest water in the West, so they haven't raised prices for water consumption in the Salt Lake City metro area, and often price drives um, consumption. And then Salt Lake City itself is in peril. One uh, Republican state lawmaker called what might transpire out there an environmental nuclear bomb, and what he was talking about was the sediment underneath the Great Salt Lake is contaminated with arsenic and a lot of other heavy metals due to mining activity in the region. And as the Great Salt Lake shrinks and the lake bed becomes exposed, the potential for dust storms, specifically toxic dust storms, blowing into the Salt Lake City area uh, increases significantly and could be a huge environmental catastrophe if things move in that direction. Well, here's the thing I don't get, which is clearly in Salt Lake, there are a lot of good reasons to address water usage. Like if if an environmental nuclear bomb could be headed your way, that's a pretty strong incentive to do something. But it sounds like they're not. They're keeping water prices low. They're not putting 
all sorts of other th- limitations into effect that could affect water usage. What do you make of that? I mean, the answer to your question, I first of all, I don't have a good answer to it also outside of saying, you know, it, in, it's part of human nature, I think, to put off some of these long-term threats if they're not immediately staring us in the face. I think that's a challenge of climate change in the sense that, you know, for a long time, it's felt like a threat that's a long way off. It's kind of like by the time you address it, it's too late. After the break, how do you face down a mega drought? History gives you some clues. I understand that you work with a lot of historians because you study climate events in the distant past and you compare that to now. I'm kind of curious what looking at the historical past and overlaying climate changes on top of that has taught you about this mega drought and what its impact might be. So there were mega droughts in the Southwest that naturally occurred, and there were a significant number of them um, during the medieval period. And they impacted cultures like the ancestral Puebloans in regions like Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde. These were the cliff-dwelling populations that uh, created these iconic structures that we're all familiar with. During several of these mega droughts, these um, communities abandoned a lot of these settlements and um, migrated to other regions and assimilated with other tribes and so on throughout the Southwest. People were moving to get away from the drought. People were moving. People were moving to get away from the drought. They had, you know, huge impacts on these populations. So I think there's a story of peril there. But I think there's a story of optimism there as well, because we often, I think, cast a lot of these historical responses in this unfair dichotomy. It's either resiliency or collapse. The idea is that either these these uh, communities simply collapsed in the face of these climatic calamities or they had some feature of their existence that allowed them to overcome the challenges that the climate imposed. But I think when you dig into those stories in more detail, you find that the way that societies responded to these climatic challenges was much more nuanced and much more complicated in the way that They relied on a larger community network, the way that they assimilated with other communities, the way that they adapted and found new ways of existing. Are you saying it's kind of why not both? Like you can have resilience while also some things are going very wrong. I think that's accurate, right. And so when we look at where we are currently, I think that the challenges that we face are addressable. (laughs) We can, we, I mean, already there's been so much innovation in terms of how the West has been settled, how we use water in the West, the the strategies that we've used to, to deal with the diminishing resources. But what it really takes is a recognition of the challenge, which I think is something that continues to need to happen in a lot of places, to take the kind of predictive information that the climate community is providing and really plan in accordance with it. We want to, you know, in the grasshopper and ant parable, we want to be the ants in this case. We want to be thinking about what the threats and risks are going to be and acting intelligently and uh, proactively. 
I wonder how often you find yourself speaking to people in political power about your work and what you most want to tell them. I don't speak to people in political power that frequently directly. I mean, I, I hope that the work that we do, and I, I have an impression that it is digested by decision-making circles. We do work with decision-makers in the Southwest in various capacities to help them understand what we're doing and also try to understand the kinds of questions that are useful for, for water planners out West. Do you get the sense they're listening to you? Like really hearing you? I think so. I think that the people who are on the ground really dealing with these challenging water issues and trying to plan for the future are taking these things into consideration. I guess, you know, getting back to your question about what I would want to convey to them as my primary message, it's that this is really a fundamental threat that has to be addressed with urgency. And I think what tends to happen is climate change in the news cycle, climate change in the decision-making structure gets lumped in with a lot of other things. And I can understand that from a decision-maker's perspective, just the fact that there's a lot on anyone's plate. But the longer that we just treat this as another problem in the distance, the more suffering there's going to be. Part of what I think your work indicates is the importance of looking at centuries of history to try to understand where we're going next, especially when it comes to the climate. Because you'll be fooled if you look just like 20, 30, even 100 years back. But it strikes me that politicians are kind of operating on a different timeline than that. Like they're maybe thinking about re-election. They're maybe thinking about recent history. Do you wonder sometimes if that's a problem, just like the the different incentives for the people who actually need to make the difficult decisions here? Absolutely. I think that's at the heart of a lot of it. A lot of the politicians who are making decisions now are not going to feel the effects of these water challenges decades into the future, but it's their decisions now that are going to make a difference for that. And where I think, you know, what, as I reflect on this, I think that the biggest challenge to addressing the climate crisis isn't necessarily decisions about climate. It's within the United States in particular, structural deficits in our democracy. I think when you think about incentives, the role of money in our political process, you know, gerrymandering, all of the voter disenfranchisement efforts, these are things that I think are challenging our ability to address climate change in addition to so many other things. And when I think about where we stand publicly on climate change, there's already a majority of people who see this as a problem that we need to address. Well over 60% in the polling suggests that uh, the American public feels that way. But just like so many other issues where there's a public opinion that's formed around an issue that people want action on, we continue to see inaction, certainly at the federal level, on the issues because of these structural deficits in our democracy. And I, I think our ability to address climate change requires that we think about those, those features of our democracy that aren't working well currently. Is there a way that you're adjusting your life personally, knowing what you do about the climate and this mega drought? I mean, I, I've been um, concerned about my um, environmental impact since as long as I can remember, certainly into college and so on, when my environmental consciousness sort of evolved. 
I think about everything from what I eat to how I use energy. In some cases, to my par partner's dismay about um, you know how we use appliances around the house and when we use air conditioning and all of these things. And that's really important. It's really important for connecting our individual actions to this larger problem of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But I will say that you know my thinking on that has evolved over time as well. We participate in this carbon-based economy. And there are only so many things that an individual can do within that system to reduce their carbon footprint. And this idea of carbon footprint, for instance, has been used by the fossil fuel companies to deflect responsibility in many ways. So you'll see these kind of inane discussions where you know, somebody says that we need to do something about climate change, and then it's pointed out that they use a private jet. And that's not great optics, I'll admit, or that they eat hamburgers or whatever it is that people want to use to say, yeah, but you're not doing X, Y, or Z. And I, I just think that that's a poor framing. We all can do individual things to really help this, but the most that we can do individually is to get involved with collective action to address this problem systemically. Yeah, it's interesting, though. It's, it's like you're saying that the the action maybe isn't like not eating a hamburger or driving an electric car, although that's great. The action is maybe trying to make some change in how government works so that all of the structural things can be put in motion. Absolutely. I mean, I, I come back to the pandemic as an example in this again. So we all adjusted our lifestyles over the pandemic in the most extreme ways. And, you know, we we stayed in our apartments. We didn't see our friends. We stopped traveling. So as an individual disruption to our lifestyles, that was immense. And the amount that we reduced carbon emissions over that time period, so in, in 2020, we reduced our carbon emissions by about seven or eight percent. That was a tremendous amount of individual action, but really a drop in the bucket. And it's because we were still heating our homes. We were still turning on our computers to have Zoom meetings. We were doing all of these other things that are still fundamentally and systemically based on our carbon economy. And all of that has to change for us to really decarbonize and address this problem fundamentally. Jason Smerdin, I'm really grateful for your time and for your research. Thanks for coming on the show. Mary, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Ocean and climate physicist Jason Smerdin is the Lamont Research Professor at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter, say hello, check out how my watermelon plants are doing. I'm at Mary's desk. In the meantime, I'll catch you back here bright and early tomorrow. <laughs> 